I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, conversations, interviews, streams of consciousness, music, and NBA references. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. If you're looking for extra things to listen to during these challenging times, check out some other projects I put out. Plaintext Ideas, a podcast where big ideas get jotted down then contemplated at length with experts. Run It Back, a basketball retrospective podcast that looks back at players, games, and moments in the NBA and basketball at large through Pot of Bing glasses. And finally, Game Federer, a podcast that relives and revisits every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm doing that one with my friend and sports broadcaster, Brian Clark. If any of those sound like you, give them a try. They're all available anywhere you find podcasts. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with Joe Basso a few weeks back. Joe wrote the season one episode, A Hit is a Hit. We talked about that experience, his time working in a for Island Records, and much more. Stay safe and be well out there, guys. Here's Joe. Thanks for making time for this in these unprecedented times, man. How you doing? <laughs> Uh, okay, in these unprecedented times, it's uh, pretty crazy. Are you hanging in? Hanging in, thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, daughter's home from school, my wife is working from home, uh, everything feels upside down. How about you? Uh, same. My wife and I are trying to figure out how to homeschool our six-year-old, and it's uh, it's I, it's actually, all things considered, not going that badly but like just wondering how many days and how many months how many weeks like just that's the part that's so confusing right now how old's your daughter yeah uh she's uh actually turning 18 uh in a few days Uh, so she's you know senior in high school you know all things considered she's being very matter of fact about it which is good because you know she could be very dramatic about it but so far so good yeah, I feel like a lot of things are being taken away from us, like immediately, you know, and, and different age brackets are dealing with it differently. Um, well, where are you based? I'm in uh, New Jersey, Northern Jersey. North Jersey, perfect setting for our yeah. uh, our conversation today. I'm, uh, ba- I'm in uh, Sopranos land, basically. Love it, love it. Wonderful segue. How did the Sopranos project happen for you? Okay, so it was in 98, and I was... Uh, uh, vice president of A&R for Island Records. I was an A&R guy, so I would travel around and sign bands and uh, make records and do that kind of thing, uh, which was a very exciting job, and I, I loved doing it. At the same time, I was starting to want to do something else. I had gone to school for film and really, really wanted to pursue screenwriting. So... What I would do was, uh, after I would uh, go see bands, I would come home, and I'd have a lot of adrenaline, and I couldn't go to sleep, so I would start writing screenplays. Um, 
and I wrote, uh, well, I wrote a couple, but uh, one in particular uh, was a very uh, music-based script. So I gave it to uh, a friend of mine who was a music supervisor who loved it and said, hey, you know, let me give this to a, a film director friend of mine, uh, which he did. And uh, he loved it. So we would get together and uh, go through the script, and he he uh, wanted to turn it into a film. He it looked like for a time it was uh, going to happen, and uh, so we we did that for a period of a few months. And then one day I get a call from the director, who said, uh, "You know, I love the script, but my agents read it, and they just don't feel that it's a project for me. So I don't think I'm going to be able to do it." And I was like, "Oh, you know, that's." That's awful, and I was pretty depressed about it. And about a week later, then I get a call from uh, uh, some people at UTA, um, who was the agent for this director. And uh, they were like, you know, yeah, you know, we didn't feel it was the right project for our, our guy, but we gave the script to uh, somebody else that we represent, um, David Chase. And uh, he really, really likes it, so he would like to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, this is before the internet and stuff, but, uh, I was, I was like, oh, David Chase, wait, uh, Northern Exposure. Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. I'd love to talk to him. So he called me up, David, and he's like, you know, yeah, you know, so I finished with Northern Exposure and I got this new show, uh, that I'm doing, uh, called The Sopranos. Now, even though I was in, you know, doing A&R, I was, uh, you know, a rock A&R guy. So I'm like, well, I don't know anything about opera. <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 it's not that. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a show about the, the mob. And I was like, oh, well, okay, well, that's, you know, up my alley. I like that. So as it turned out, I had to be in L.A. the next week. So I flew out, and I was at my hotel. And uh, David had uh, the people at HBO. He had the pilot already shot. So he had the pilot sent over to me on a, a VHS. So I sat in my hotel room and just by myself, knowing very little about the show at all, I sat down to watch it and I was like, oh my God, this thing is great. You know, I had kind of seen, seen James Gandolfini do little bit parts. So I was like, oh my God, this is great to see him in a starring role. And, you know, so it was the pilot. It was great. I, I just immediately was like, this is one of the freshest, best things I've seen in a long, long time. And uh, so I met up with David a couple of days later, and what was funny was um, he, I started telling him how great it was and, you know, what a fresh take on, uh, on the mob I thought it was. And he, was, he seemed a little down. And I was like, you know, kind of like, you know, what, what's wrong? You seem a little down. And... Uh, He's like, yeah, you know, I think it's really good, but I just found out that they're going to do this movie called Analyze This, and it's uh, De Niro and Billy Crystal, and it's a mob guy and his, his psychiatrist. And I was like, you know, oh. And he's like, yeah, you know, people are going to really see that, and, you know, will they really like my thing? <laughs> so I was like, well, look, I don't know. I mean, obviously, De Niro, Billy Crystal feels like it would probably do well, but I think your thing is really great. It's, it's, you know, yeah, there's that little aspect to it, but, uh, I think your thing is, is fantastic. So then we just started talking and he's like, well, do you have any ideas? 
So I was, I was kind of like a little on the spot, like, whoa, okay. But I said, you know, I really like that character of Christopher, you know, the young guy. And he's like, yeah, you know, we got to develop stuff for him. So I kind of just sort of riffed with it. I kind of spun with it. And I was like, you know, what if, what if he wanted to do, to do something else that wasn't the mob? And what if he wanted to get into the music business? And, you know, David kind of lit up. So we kind of took it from there. You know, that's, that's kind of how it started to develop. That's beautiful. I love that. And I, I love that you said that he didn't think anybody like that analyzed this was going to be a movie that everybody saw and talked about. And here we are talking about the Sopranos. And, uh, I can, I, I can pretty much assure you that if you put the Sopranos up against analyze this and analyze that it's, they're not even in the same stratosphere anymore. Isn't that crazy how things turn out? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the analyzed films are, are wonderful. There's, you know, nothing wrong with them at all. They're, they're, they're great, but, you know, very, very different and certainly not anything like The Sopranos. And it, it just felt funny, like, you know, he, he kind of, you know, seemed a little um, concerned that his timing might be off. But I was like, you know, I think your thing is great and people are going to gravitate towards something great and, you know... Uh, I, 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 I thought it was, you know, just from the pilot alone, I was like, this thing can really be something. Sure. Well, I feel like with timing though, like a lot of things, there's a lot of copycats or, or mimickers out there. If you do something and, and it, even if a piece of it or like a little part of it strikes a chord, you know, other things are going to prop up around it. It's sort of, I feel like it's like the nature of things. So, um, imitation is the highest form of flattery is one thing people, you hear people say, but, um, I also feel like it's inevitable. Um, it is interesting though, that no one has done a Sopranos type show since the Sopranos. I, yeah, I, I, I think to, to, I think for anybody to sort of go down that road, I, I think you got to do something completely different again. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, and so far nobody's really done it. And, you know, I want to clarify or, or, or at least, you know, stress, you know, that's sort of the great thing about David, though, um, because, uh, you know, I remember he, he really, really uh, is micro about every aspect and, you know, it's kind of that thing where, like, you know, you're never satisfied. You're just always looking at every line, every scene, every nuance. So I think he was just, like, you know, really, really always wanting to make sure that, that his show was, was the best it could be. And, you know, I guess sometimes that means, you know, guessing and second-guessing, but just always trying to make sure that it's as good as possible. And being confident enough to take chances because you got to take, this was, this episode in particular was sort of out of the ordinary. Like you said, it focused on Christopher's sort of other interests and it wasn't on the traditional Sopranos track. I just think there's like four or five episodes in the series where people look back and they say there are a couple of the standalone or the outlier episodes. And I think this was one of the first ones. College, obviously, I think started the template of taking the viewer outside of the normal world that we're accustomed to. And to an extent, this did that a little bit. Did you have any conversations about that, about expanding the universe outside of New Jersey or outside of organized crime at all? Was that part of the um, ether of the discussion or? No, n nothing, nothing quite that, that grand at all. Um, no, I don't, I don't recall anything like that. Um, it's, it's funny though. You, you mentioned that though, because you know, in the, 
in the, you know, when the show premiered in 99, we still didn't really have the internet. Uh, you know, it's certainly not like we have now, with, you know, with, with Facebook and, um, you know, all kinds of social media. So even though you would see, you know, it got big ratings, you know, you kind of didn't know what everyone thought about every episode all the time. Cause there wasn't this, you know, social gathering where everyone could talk about it. Um, so in the years since I've seen people, you know, they, they rate the episodes and, you know, they have listicles and all that kind of thing. And, 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 and this episode, it, it, it's funny, like some, there are some people that, that, that love it because it's kind of an outlier. And some people are kind of like, you know, well, I don't know if it really fits with the whole thing. And, you know, sometimes it's a little prickly and you have to go, you know, ouch, you know, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. You take the chances. Absolutely. You take the chances. And when we analyzed, when we reviewed the episode, like, you know, there is obviously that one side of criticism, but what I, what I say and what I've said often is that if you're invested in these characters and you love the story, you have to let them kind of breathe a little bit and go out and try new things and go new places and introduce new concepts. So I'm a Sopranos apologist, but that doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's a testament to greatness when you have something really great and you stay out of the safe mold and you try to take some chances. And that's what I, that's one of the reasons why I love the show and uh, David's execution of it. Um, Talk about writing the actual episode itself. How many drafts did you do? This is like procedural, technical, nerdy stuff. What was your, what was your mandate? Stuff like that. Where did you write it? However you want to cast that anecdote, please. Yeah. Well, um, luckily, uh, even though I was still doing A&R at the time, um, my job was such that I was able to spend a lot of time, because I'm based in, in New Jersey and, and worked in New York, but I, I, various recording projects would keep me in L.A. for big blocks of time. So I would have like a couple weeks at a time to spend in L.A., so I would uh, meet with David and, uh, you know, the main core of writers um, at his office. And so we kind of would have, we, we had kind of the, the basic idea, which I think kind of me and David kind of hammered together a bit. And then the other writers would kind of weigh in. And then you basically have kind of a bit of, you know, you start doing a, a beats, you know, and right. there would be the, the chalkboard. And you'd write out the beats, you know, this happens, this happens, this happens. So we did that for a couple of days. And then David basically said, you know, okay, Joe, you know, go off and, and write. So I actually went back to Jersey and spent uh, two weeks and did a, did a draft and sent it off to David. And uh, I think I went back to LA again and met with them uh, some more for a couple of days, refined it some more. And I did another draft, and uh, then my part of it was done. And after that, uh, Frank Ranzulli, who was one of the other writers on the show, um, he he did a revision of the script. So we do share credit, and he wrote he wrote great stuff. Uh, you know, anything anything I had that was good stayed in, but he he put in stuff that was just really magical. Uh, you know, you always you know some writers get kind of upset when somebody else does a draft and shares the credit and you're like, Oh, you know, my stuff got lost and anything like that. But I didn't, I didn't have that feeling at all. Frank did, you know, beautiful stuff. Massive genius. Was that in the first draft? Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think I, I think, 
I think uh, I came up with that pretty pretty uh, early in the process because I, I think in just was it a play on Massive Attack at all? Um, no, uh, he he was just a compendium of of um, sort of those larger than life uh, uh, hip hop impresarios at the time. I've always yeah. wondered because Massive Attack is a big band, and I think there's even a song by Massive Attack in the series, and so I wondered if it was sort of a riff on that. No, no, it, it, he was just really a composite of uh, various hip hop uh, uh, so, uh, impresarios. And I was thrilled when they cast uh, Bokeem uh, Woodbine. Uh, I was going to say, he just, did you know you were writing for him? Or did you find that after no, the fact? No, not at all. Uh, it was a week or two before filming, and David told me who, 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 who was cast. And I was like, oh, he's great. Perfect. Uh, what label did you work for back in your A&R days? Uh, it was Island Records. Island Records, I think you said that. And what bands did you sign or try to sign? Any notable couple of little highlights from that period of your life? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say probably the two that people probably know the best. Uh, I signed a band called Quicksand, um, who was probably one of the most uh, pioneering uh, hardcore bands of the 90s. And I signed, uh, I think I signed one of the first power duos uh, this band called uh, Local H uh, out of Zion, Illinois, uh, which is almost Chicago. Right. Um, guitar and drums. And this was before any of the other, you know, this was before White Stripes, the Black Keys, any of the duos. And everyone thought I was crazy signing a, a duo. Right, no bass. How can you have a rock band with no bass guitar, right? That's probably what a lot of people say. The guitar player, Scott Lucas, he rigged his guitar up so that it goes through a guitar amp and a bass amp, and he has pedals, and he totally lays out the bass sound with the guitar sound. He was He's a genius. Incredible. So, visiting day, I'm sure, now that I know that you were an A&R guy, this, this all starts to fall into place, right? It all starts to make sense why this storyline happened. Um, what can you say about visiting day? What can you say about the storyline of having a band, you know, kind of unravel uh, in front of <laughs> Christopher? Like, is that, is that, was that experience? Was that true to life for you? Well, you know, being an A&R guy, um, I knew a lot of musicians, and this is one of the, to me, one of the most charming and funny moments of working on this episode. So, you know, we had the script done. And uh, so, you know, we pretty much locked the script. And David and I were talking, and he's like, you know, yeah, you know, well, so we need we need a band um, for this episode, but they can't be too good. And I looked at David and I said, I know just the guys. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so I got I got together some friends of mine, um, you know, great people, Chris Gibson, Nick Fowler. And I told them, I'm like, okay, you know, you guys were, a, you know, a, a, a hair metal band and now you're trying to be alt rock, but you know, you gotta be kind of confident, uh, competent, but just, just walk up to the line of being good and then back off a little bit. Great note. And it actually, it's funny because the band, it's the perpetual thing with Visiting Day. There's still a meme in Sopranos land as far as the internets are concerned, like uh, as far as being a benchmark for like what your band could be or should be or would be. So it's it stood the test of time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some fun lines from the episode. Christopher waiting for a burger. Uh, whose welfare check you got to cash to get a burger around here? Was that a first draft or was that did that come after? 
Oh boy, I can't remember. So it, I honestly can't. Yeah, it's uh, that's going back away. So I don't know if I can remember certain lines. And then there was a great moment. I don't know if you have any story about this or not, but when Paulie finds out who the gangster is, right? Massive attack and or massive massive genius. Sorry, and he says that guy's a gangster. I'm a gangster, and he says that <laughs> yeah. while he's while he's taking off a bulletproof vest. That was a great little. Polly moment for the series, all time moment. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna say a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. James Gandolfini. I will tell you my James Gandolfini story. Um, it, uh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you. Uh, you asked. So, okay, this was my first writing credit. All right. So I'm a nobody. Which, by the way, is an incredible thing to be able to say. Just want to say that for the record. <laughs> No, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, you know, it's my first writing credit. Uh, I'm just feeling lucky and glad to even be there, to be part of it. And, and you know, David and everybody there, they just treated me like a king. Uh, they brought me to, um, uh, to cast readings. So I got to, you know, sit in the room while the cast all sat at the table and went through the script. I mean, I'm just like, wow, this is incredible. So a um, couple weeks later... Uh, they're shooting the episode and they would shoot it in New Jersey because David was all for authenticity. So um, I'm on the set and I'm just kind of like hanging out by the, the cameras and, uh, and someone comes over and, uh, and taps me on the shoulder and they're like, uh, you know, you're the writer. And I'm like, uh, yeah. And uh, they're like, um, J- James Gandolfini um, wanted to ask you something. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I go over to, it was like this porch and where they're shooting a scene. And I go over and, and James looks at me, he's like, uh, you know, you're the writer? And I'm like, yeah. Um, and he goes, yeah, I just wanted to ask you, you know, there's this one line and I wanted to change a word. Is that okay? And I'm like, uh, yeah, of course it's okay. <laughs> however you want to, however you want to say it, you know, go for it. And he's like, okay, well, I just wanted to make sure, you know, because, you know, you wrote it. And I, I walked away, and I'm like, now that's a guy, you know, because, again, I wasn't like some celebrated writer with, you know, Emmy Awards or anything like that. I'm a first-time guy. Mm. But he had such respect for the written word and the writer that he called me over just to ask me if it was okay to change a word. I, I mean, I... And when he died, I thought of that. You know, I was just like, because he probably did that to everybody, and and that's why that's just one of the one of the reasons why everyone loved him. You know, even as as you know, big as he got in the business, and you know, beloved, you know, in so many awards and all that. I think anyone he ever worked with, he probably treated the same way. You mentioned he was on a porch. Was it the scene where he's sitting in Hesh's house? Is that what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the scene or the line or the word or what he was talking about? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't. I wish I did. Um, but it was it was something just that minuscule where yeah. you know he could he could just said the line any way he wanted to, and uh, you know I don't, I don't even know if I would notice, you know, because actors change words and. You know, you put in a well or an and or a but or, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I was just floored that he would, um, you know, take the moment to 
to call me over. When I say Edie Falco, what comes to mind? Beautiful, you know, luminous, uh, funny, uh, <laughs> um, just incredible talent. Um, I didn't have a lot of interaction with her, uh, just, uh, you know, I think in the writer's room, really, but, you know, she's, you know, she's just remarkable. And finally, David Chase. Oh, my. What a guy. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I you know, I, I, I got to spend some real quality time with him uh, while we were putting this together. And it's, it's, I could just tell that, you know, I mean, this was the first season and, you know, the first batch of episodes. But I could just tell that, man, this guy's mind is just going. And he, uh, I, I, I was just like, he is plotting this whole thing out. Uh, maybe he'll say he wasn't, but I, I think he was. You could just tell that he could see where this whole thing was, was, was really going. He, he would keep it close to the vest, you know, mm. but you could just tell that, that, that something was lurking there the whole time. But what I, what I also remember, you know, about him and, and just loved was he, he was also, he's a real music fan. And uh, I remember sitting with him and we would just chit chat and he was telling me about seeing the stones at Altamont. Um, and, uh, you know, he, you know, he, he was a real music fan, um, really knew, really knew his stuff. Well, obviously, you know, you, you know, you know, the movie that he did later, uh, not fade away, um, you know, set in, uh, you know, the early sixties, um, with Jersey kids, yeah. uh, taken, you know, taken to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and stuff. He, he really knew his stuff. Did you want to write more episodes? Was there ever an occasion or option for that? I mean, there was a little bit of discussion, but for whatever reason, it didn't, it didn't work out. Uh, at the same time, um, I then, you know, got on some other shows. And so, you know, it just, uh, for whatever reason, uh, that was my, uh, my one big episode. What shows are you enjoying right now? Especially now, (laughs) given the state of the world, what have you been watching that you've been enjoying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we, we're probably a little late, but we, uh, my wife and I, uh, binged through a flea bag, which we thought was remarkable. Um, oh, sex education. Have you seen that? No. Tell me about it. You must watch it. It's on uh, Netflix and, uh, you know, it started out, uh, just kind of very raunchy and outrageous and, you know, for like the first episode where we were kind of like, you know, oh, is that what's going to be? But then you, you, by the second, third, fourth episode, it develops this this poignancy and just this heart comes through. Still very, still very, you know, raunchy, but just heart like crazy. So that was a great one. Uh, what else have we been watching? Sometimes we, we actually like to watch BritBox. Um, so we'll watch uh, shows like Mum, mm. uh, M-U-M, and Vera, which is a, a British detective show. Um and completely off the beaten path, we're addicted to the the Great British Baking Show. I know that one well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. With everything going on in the world, and we're just brutalized every day by Trump. Uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes just to sit back for an hour and watch people try to bake the ultimate cake. 
uh, just can really take you away from everything. Yeah. One of the things I've been doing, especially this week, uh, and it's probably going to be a lot longer is I've been just opening up old cookbooks and figuring out things that we can cook at home with the ingredients that we have. And, um, uh, in these cooking shows and these how to shows are, I think are going to be doing extremely well in the (laughs) near immediate term. It's a, it's escapism if nothing else. They always say like cooking is therapy. Like, I don't think there's a better time to be making your hands move around in different ways than ever before. So, well, you know, uh, I, I, I think I, I, you know, in times of trouble, you know, I mean, look in the, in the, in the thirties with the depression and, uh, and then the, the, the war, what did people do? They flocked to the, the movie theaters. Uh, right now we can't flock to the movie theaters, but we can certainly watch, you know, everything, <laughs> So, so much things, um, you know, streaming and stuff. So I, I think uh, we need the, uh, the arts more than ever. For sure. What are some books that you've been reading or recommending to people lately? Um, I'm reading right now. I forget the title of it, actually. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Um, I'm reading a book on the making of uh, the movie Chinatown. Um, oh, I, I read the review for that like a few days ago. It's a new book, right? Yeah, it just came out in January, and I'm about halfway halfway through. Really well done, brilliant stuff. Um, if you if you like that period of Hollywood, it's it's great. What music have you been listening to lately? Hmm. Hmm. What music have I been listening to? Um, let's see. Um, wow. Uh, I, I not any one thing really. Um, I, I, I jump around, you know, uh, a lot of new stuff, a lot of old stuff, not any one thing. I, I never stay grounded too long. Are you still connected to the music business in any way or like professionally or otherwise? I, I, I write, uh, I, I, I write, uh, music journalism. Yeah. But I, I'm not in the, in the A&R part of things anymore. Finally, if you hosted a podcast, what would you want it to be about? <laughs> oh boy. Hmm. Um, getting Trump out of office. That's the sole focus. That would be the sole focus. Any guest that would come on, it, that would be the entire interview. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for being a part of this. I wish you well during this time and all the best. Thank you. You too. And thank you very much for asking me. This was a, a, a lot of fun. 